Hey, good morning, guys. We are week two of questions you never thought you could ask in church. If you are new with us this week, let me catch you up to speed with what's been going on. Last week, we began this three-week run through the series, and here's the idea behind it. All of us have questions. Questions about God, questions about life, questions about spirituality, questions maybe uh, about church or Christianity or, or fellowship of faith. Shoot, maybe questions about me. I offered this last week. No one took me up on it. Questions about my wife. I'll be happy to tell you. All right? We have questions because what it means to be walking with God in a relationship with God is getting to know him more. And when we discover things about God or come face to face with things in his word or in our life, questions are inevitably going to come up. So here's what we're encouraging you to do, and it's going to continue on today as well. What we encourage you to do is take out one of these. Pull out your phone, and in a minute, well, let me just do it now. I will flash the number on the screen. You can text any question you have to 815-314-0363. Again, that's 815-314-0-F-O-F. I will get them anonymously, and I will do my best to answer them in real time on the spot. And let me just encourage you on this. Nothing is off limits. It doesn't matter how weird it is, how heretical it is, how embarrassing it is. It doesn't matter how mainline it is or how out there. It doesn't matter how simple or complex. Just going to spend a time together trying to wrestle through some of these and see what maybe I can breathe into it for you right now. Now, last week, we, we got through maybe one-third of the questions um, here at 9 o'clock. I mean, you guys blew the doors off it. You actually beat 1030, and that's a first in all our time doing this. So uh, what I'm going to do to get us started is tackle a couple of the ones that came in last week, and then um, every few moments or so I'll go to live text and we'll kind of ping pong back and forth between live text and cleanup from the previous week. So here's a long one. Why doesn't God just get rid of Satan? Why does he allow him to get into people's heads? I mean, I understand free will, but Satan gets in people's heads, and most of the time they don't even know it. I think more people believe in God than Satan, and that makes it easier for him to convince people to do what is against God's will. Lot there. And let me just kind of reinforce that we are putting these up here as we get them without editing or anything like that. Okay? Why doesn't God just get rid of Satan? Uh, he actually promises a day when he will. Um, so maybe the better question is, why doesn't he do it now? And the short answer is, I don't know. But woven in throughout the rest of the reason why God waits to bring his judgment on this earth to return and set all things right is this idea of patience. And for some reason, the... Getting rid of Satan for everything is reserved to that day. So in the meantime, we, uh, we wait and unfortunately feel his wrath in the interim. Next question. Slide, please. In, first, in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, it says, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell to be kept until judgment... 
When it speaks of angels, is it referring to those who died and are already in heaven? And does this mean that once we enter heaven, sin will still exist and we could potentially get kicked out and thrown into hell as well? Let's kind of start unpacking and unraveling this one. When it refers to angels, it is actually referring to angels, not people who have died in heaven. You do not become an angel when you die and go to heaven any more than a dog becomes a person when he dies and goes to heaven. It's a different species, and, and there's no, no, no basis in Christian theology about when you get to heaven, you get your wings. Okay, does that make sense? So make sure you keep a clear delineation between the two. However, does this mean that once we enter heaven, sin will still exist? Um, no, not in heaven. Not at that late level of existence, not at that, not at that plane, and certainly not in eternity. Along with the binding of Satan, there's this idea that that sin is expelled, and um, it's not like you got to sit there in eternity fearing, uh-oh, are we going to have to go through this whole biblical cycle again? Um, no, good news for you. Once you're there, boom, good stuff. All right? I'm hearing these beep. Let's take a few of the live. Here's one. Cubs or White Sox? All right? Um, straight up, and you're not going to like my answer. I couldn't care less. Um, yeah, I told you. Here's another one. Why are so many Christians quick to judge and slow to love? Because so many Christians are sinners. Here's another one. How does God feel about me, a Christian Lutheran, officiating a gay marriage? And I don't know who the me is. It's not referring to me. It's referring to whoever paid 25 bucks out here to get their ordination. Um, how does God feel about me, or whatever your background is, a Christian Lutheran officiating a gay marriage? I'll give you my take on it. I don't think it's something God wants you to do. Fundamentally, the, the issue with homosexuality is, is sex and not per se the legal ramifications that, that might extend beyond civil unions and things like that. But nonetheless, I would be very cautious and very careful of putting yourself into a position that condones a behavior that God just doesn't embrace. Now, without knowing context behind it, there may be more questions to come. Um, text them in. Do you believe in ghosts and hauntings. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm alone at night um, and it's dark out and it's October, yeah, I totally believe in them because it gets creepy out there. Um, but let's go a little bit deeper than that. Do I think that the supernatural world exists? Yes, absolutely I do. Do I think that any time someone says there's a ghost or a haunting or some kind of supernatural occurrence that it actually is so? No, I do not. However, I do think the scriptures speak about a spiritual world that is active, alive, and well, and on the prowl, and in most of it is shrouded in mystery, so a lot of it remains unknown, but you do actually have examples, even in the Old Testament, of things like this. You might write it off and go, well, man, they were like superstitious people from 3,000 years ago. Yeah, but we're superstitious people in 2000 AD as well, and... Um, don't judge people by the era they live in. How about this? So when we die, do we go to heaven or do we wait for the second coming of Christ? Short answer, yes. 
when you die, you go to heaven. And when you die, you wait for the second coming of Christ. Too many believers have the idea that when you go to heaven after you die, that is the goal and that is the end. The New Testament never pictures it like that. It calls what we call heaven, well, theologians call it, the intermediate state, which means it's in the middle of something, right? The, the, the end goal painted by the New Testament is the resurrection of the dead when Christ comes and the new heaven and new earth is ushered in. So yes, um, I, I've got loved ones who have died and, and their souls are with Jesus right now. But they are still not yet experiencing the fullness of God's promise. And just like we wait on this side, they wait on that side for the day to come. How about this? If God has a plan for all our lives, why do we still need to believe and have faith? That's an interesting one. I like that. If God has a plan for all of our lives, why do we still need to believe and have faith? Because just because God has a plan for your life doesn't mean that plan will come to pass. Guard yourself against a fatalistic idea of God that says just because he is sovereign and in control, everything will happen according to his will. Let me give you an example. God knew that Adam and Eve would fall into sin. That does not mean God wanted Adam and Eve to fall into sin. It does not mean he orchestrated that to happen. It does not mean in his sovereign power they had no choice but to sin. The same is true for you. God has a plan, and he wants you to accept it, respond to it, and follow it. But you don't have to, and he's not going to make you. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of scary, isn't it? God puts a lot more responsibility in our hands than I'd ever like to admit. So hopefully that one helped. Okay. What are your thoughts about Rob Bell's opinion about people not going to hell? Don't know if you're familiar with the book, but it's called Love Wins, and it came out arguably five, six, maybe seven years ago by a, a teacher I love and respect named Rob Bell. And um, he got a bad rap on the book. Um, and I found a lot of misconstrual about things that he was arguing for that were taken, I believe, out of context. Rob Bell in the book does not say that people don't go to hell. In fact, he, he says they do. What he does entertain, though, is an option that C.S. Lewis entertained as well, is that when people go to hell, do they still have a chance to come out of hell? And then, if they do have a chance, is it a theoretical chance that will have no practicality of response, or, or can it go another level? And those start to get into deeper questions. But what I would suggest you do is if you're wrestling with this, and maybe wrestling with this teacher in this book, is um, read it. Um, read it and let him speak to you with his arguments and don't take everything um, as gospel truth. Don't take everything I say as gospel truth, but wrestle with the text. And if you'd like to talk more on, on some of the sophistries of the, the argument, come find me or text it in. All right, how about this? What do you think about purgatory 
and the extra books in the Catholic Bible. Aren't those ideas contrary to what the Bible says? Two questions embedded in one, and I've got to separate them. Purgatory and extra books in the Catholic Bible. Let's take that latter question first. Those extra books, there's about 17 of them, depending on how you, you count in order, that, that are appended to the end of the Old Testament that you'll find in most Catholic translations of the Bible, but that you will not find in Jewish or Protestant translations of the Bible. Um, and these extra books are called the Apocrypha, and, and quite honestly, they're a phenomenal read. I really highly encourage you, pick them up and read them someday. There's a lot of truth, there's a lot of wisdom, there's a lot of insight, and there's a lot of history that are embedded in these books, and they're good stuff, and by and far, they are not contradictory at all, but very complementary to the rest of the Bible. On every single point, no, but overall. And I would say the same thing about most Christian books written today, okay? So, um, Hopefully that answers that question, but what do you think about purgatory? I think it's an unpleasant place that I never want to go to. And I'm really happy that I don't think I ever will because I don't think that it exists. Purgatory is an idea that grew up within Catholic theology that said one has to be righteous to stand before God. Now that's biblical. One has to be righteous to stand before God. God. All right, let's do the show of hands. Who's willing to go, I'm righteous? I could do that. So if you are a believer in Jesus, but you are not yet righteous, what do you do? Well, purgatory was seen as, as a waiting room to heaven, a place where your sins would be purged, hence purgatory. You hear it? in there, almost like a refiner's fire, that they would be kind of purged or, or cleansed or detoxed from you before you could come into God's presence. Protestant thinkers and theologians have, have rejected purgatory, not on the fact that we, 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 we don't need to be righteous to stand before God, but that our righteousness to stand before God comes not by our own intrinsic merit, but because Jesus looks at you and says, because I died for you, you're righteous. So to put it into uh, legal terms... What this could be akin to is saying, if you are guilty of a crime and you are a defendant and you are standing before the courtroom of heaven and the judge says, not guilty, why do you have to go and do prison time? Does that make sense? Hence the idea of purgatory being a construction of theology and not a biblical reality is nothing that has ever found its root in Protestant theology. All right. How about this one? I know that it's not all about the feelings, but why doesn't God let me feel his presence anymore? It's been five years of waiting. I know the typical Christian answers about this being used as a trial to make me stronger, but how long am I supposed to wait? I feel like he's ignoring me. Man, can I just tell you off the bat that my heart goes out for you? And I've been there myself. And I think many other people in this room who have been followers of Christ have experienced similar dry spells as well that have lasted for, for short or even very long periods of time. 
I do want to encourage you. It's so glad to hear you say that you know it's not about the feelings. And they feel so good. They feel so good, and I get it. And I get it, but continue to hold on to God in faith to say, Lord, I'm going to trust that you're not ignoring me, even when it feels like it. I'm going to trust that you're here, even when it doesn't feel like it. I'm going to trust that you care even when things seem contrary to that. Hold on in faith to God's promises through this time. And may I suggest this day by day. Do not paralyze or defeat yourself by fearing the how long question. Going, will this be two years, ten years? Will I ever feel it again? I don't know. Take it day by day. Because tomorrow they may come. And they may not, and you won't know. Day by day. And if there's deeper issues here of a long-term numbness, what I finally want to do is encourage you, come talk to me. Um, just, just grab me after the service, and maybe we find a time to sit down and chat for five minutes, or maybe set up an hour together to walk through what are some other things that might be, be overlaying this, or getting in the way, or, 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 or blocking something. Together, maybe there is a next step or an open door that can be, uh, that can be walked through and that you can take. I encourage you, don't blow that one off, and thanks for asking. Okay, got to catch up on some of these. How about this? Who was Cain afraid of? You know the story? It's in Genesis chapter 4. We are talking the beginning of human history. God creates Adam, and then out of Adam, he creates Eve. And these are put forward as the first two human beings. They then have kids. The first is named Cain, and then they have Abel. And later on, they have another named Seth. Cain kills Abel. God confronts Cain. God marks Cain, sends him out into exile, and Cain pleads with God for some level of mercy or protection because he's afraid of vengeance. He's afraid of others coming back upon him. But it's really odd because if there's only three human beings left at this point and two of them are your parents, who is Cain actually afraid of? Do you see the question? Do you see where it's going? I don't know. But I can tell you the options and the theories that are out there. Here's one, that he's afraid of his parents and what his parents might do to him. Here's option two, that Adam and Eve had other children not listed in the Bible. That the names that were listed were listed not because they were the only kids they had, but they were the kids that were important to the story and what was going on. So was there some fear of a greater family retribution going on? A third option, that Adam and Eve were not in fact the only human beings, but were archetypal or representative of the human race and that there were other humans in existence. Which of these options it is, the Bible is silent on. And each has their own strengths and weaknesses. But what we know from the text is this. Cain was afraid. All right. Let me put that aside. And let's go back to some more of these. What should be done 
to breast break cycles of addiction. Alcohol, sexual, gambling, pornography, drug, tobacco. We can keep adding to the list, can't we? So what should be best done to break the cycles of addiction? You know, there's so much to speak into this, um, and it's so hard to reduce to maybe a 30-second answer, but let's start here. Let's assume that you're talking from a place of struggle in your own life and not hypothetically. If I'm speaking to you and you're struggling with some kind of, let's call it this, addiction, admitting that you have one, actually coming to terms with your sin and going, this is a big deal. This does have control over me. I can't shake this. This does have a hold on me. It is destroying me. It is destroying my family. You gotta come to a place where you come face to face with your own demon. You can't stop there. After coming face to face with it, there is a biblical idea and phrase that I want to give you, and it's called this. Repentance. And repentance doesn't mean just being sorry for what you've done. Though that's certainly a piece of it. It's something so much bigger than that. Repentance means turning. That's all the word means, is to turn. To turn from that which you crave, want, desire, and hold, and turn to any avenue possible that will bring you help, accountability, strength, answers, recovery, therapy, and of course, in the center or surrounding it all, turning to God who has the ability to break chains and strongholds in people's lives. So find a support group. Find a counselor. Come clean with your family. Take it out of hiding in the darkness and bring it in the open. Make that personal commitment day by day to fight whatever addiction it is in your life. Set up a structure around you of people to help you walk along that way and dig in for the marathon. Don't think it's going to be solved in a day. Commit to it saying, every day I'm going to take one new step Every day, I'm going to renew it again. Even if I failed yesterday, I start again today. Get help in the midst of it. And if you're asking hypothetically or in relation to someone else, do not avoid the white elephant in the room with them. Kindly, humbly, lovingly, with full humility of spirit, confront them. They might write you off, confront them. They might hate you, confront them. They might mock you, confront them. If you love them, it's the best thing you can do. Here's another. What does subdue the earth mean? Change the earth so it meets our needs? Isn't God's creation perfect as it is? Here's the very first command in the Bible. God creates Adam and Eve. It says, in the the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he comes to them and he says, be fruitful and multiply. So the very first command of the Bible is have sex. Rock on there. All right? After he says that, he then goes on and says, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
These are the first commands that God gives before sin has ever entered the world. What is the purpose of humanity? So what does it mean to subdue the earth? Does it mean to change it to meet our needs? Not quite. It means take this amazing creation that God has made and govern it. Govern it. And what does a good governor do? What does a good ruler do? Does a good governor or ruler exploit his land and exploit his people for his own gain? No. A good governor or a good ruler gives himself or herself tirelessly, sacrifices himself or herself for something he chooses or she chooses to love more than himself or herself, those and that which is being governed. God made a great, a, a, a great creation, hasn't he? You look at the abundance and the diversity and the beauty and the variety of what God has built into this world, and he gives it to you. And he says, take care of it. Govern it. Bring it under God's control. Be God's image and presence. That's what it means to be an image bearer, guys. Be God's image and presence in this world. Be God's ambassador. Be God's appointed leader. God ain't here running it in person. He puts it in your hands. And we will give an account for how we have governed his earth. Isn't God's creation perfect as it is? Not anymore. And arguably not even at the beginning. See, for me, the antithesis of perfection is not corruption. In a Genesis 1 world, the antithesis of perfection is incompletion. God started something in Genesis 1 but did not bring it to completion. He completed the work that he had done. But then he gave it to you and said, develop it. Create organize, administrate, continue the work as my image bearer of developing this beautiful, wonderful creation that I've made. All right, a couple more live that are coming in. When reading the Bible, especially Revelation, how do you know if the text is literal or symbolic? Well, because I'll tell you, it's symbolic. But that's not going to be satisfactory at all, is it? It's not just a question for revelation. It's a question for all of the Bible. The teachings of Jesus included. Example, when Jesus is talking about King Herod and he tells his disciples, go tell that fox that I'm going to Jerusalem, did Jesus believe that King Herod had four legs and a bushy tail? Right? With all language and all literature, there is always the question, is it literal or is it symbolic? Well, how do you do it? You do it intuitively all the time. You instinctually read texts within their greater context. You read it within the the author's frame of mind. You read it within the greater arguments that are going on. You read it within what's obvious versus, versus what's strange. You read it according to principles that go, how does this best make sense? And this is what you do with Revelation. You immerse yourself in the genre. It ain't the only book out there written like that. 
How have other apocalyptic pieces of literature been written? You immerse yourself in the imagery of the Old and the New Testament, and you see how does this correspond. And through the, the hard work of reading the literature actively, you come at it and learn more and more about how the author is seeking to communicate rather than what kind of strictures we're placing on him. And if that doesn't sound easy, you're absolutely right. God has given it to us to wrestle through, to work through, to think about deeply, and that's good. It's the way God wants it to be. So I I encourage you, keep reading it, keep wrestling through it, and keep reading what others are saying about it and let God work through that to bring you to a place of, of, of best understanding of what's taking place. All right, how about this? If you won $20 million, what would you do with it? Would you continue to preach? It's a good question. You know, I know my, my off-the-cuff answer to this, but I think all of us have to be careful and guard ourselves against answering hypothetically compared to what would be reality. So I'll tell you this. Would I continue to preach? Absolutely. I love doing this, but I would give all the administrative work to someone else. All right? Sunday mornings is something that's at least in my soul, and being able to do this with you is something that brings me meaning and purpose and that I think I'm called to do. It is not about a money thing at all. However, if I won 20 million, what would I do? I would start like this. I would call an accountant, I would call a lawyer, and I would call a security expert. And before I ever made word of it, I would talk to them about setting up a plan. Then after that, I would have one heck of a party. Oh my gosh. And guys, you would be invited, so rock on. And... uh, From there, it would just start to explode. I would look at ways to go, how do I tithe from this? How do I take $2 million and just bless the snot out of people in unexpected ways? How do we breathe it into FOF? But more importantly, the global work God is doing outside of these doors at well where there's poverty and need. Um, Oh, yeah. Get me going on that one. So uh, start buying me Powerball tickets and... uh, We should be all right. How do you learn to trust someone again? Ooh, you ever been there? Someone who's betrayed you, hurt you, repeatedly lied to you or deceived you? How do you learn to trust someone again? The question to me presupposes that you're assuming you should. I don't know the context here. But can I start with this question back? Should you trust them again? God calls you to forgive people. God does not call you to trust people. And so depending on the nature of the relationship and what's gone down, maybe you shouldn't trust them again. And that is the most God-honoring choice you can make. But let's put that one over there. Let's say it's a different scenario. Let's say it's a scenario where a spouse has cheated on you or a kid has lied to you and it's hurt and it's real and they're repentant and you're both looking for reconciliation and you want wholeness, but you have difficulty in your heart. How do you trust again? Let me go through this a few different ways. First, remember the onus is on them. 
The onus is always on them to regain your trust, not on you to be repeatedly victimized by it and putting yourself out in some fool kind of way. They have to re-earn your trust. And it's not something you can dangle over them. It's not something to torture them with. It's not something to punish them by, even though that feels good, doesn't it? Remember that the onus is on them. And if they want to regain your trust, they will fight tooth and nail for it. And if they don't, then maybe you should question whether you should be trusting to begin with. But let's say they are. Time. Trust builds over time. It builds from the repeated observation of someone showing themselves to be faithful, avoiding opportunity, If it is in a case of a marriage, open conversation. Being able to ask the hard questions and know you'll get honest answers and having someone trying to regain trust saying, yes, I will make my life an open book to you. You want to see my cell phone? Here it is. Do you want to see my email? Here it is. Do you want an account of my day? Here it is. Do you want me to sever relationships because you fear they're getting in the way? I will. It's working through the process, and can I encourage you? Come talk to me. Grab a counselor. Get someone trusted in your life to help navigate that process. It doesn't often come quickly. But let me tell you this, for the couples that I've seen that have fought for it, that have done the hard work, things can be reforged that are stronger than they ever were to begin with. So take heart in that. I'm going to try to work through this. Are the Jewish people who had followed God's law prior to the coming of Christ in heaven? And and is there a separate heaven for those and a separate heaven for those after Christ? Kind of kicking the tires here and trying to get what you mean. So let me go to the last. Is there a separate heaven for those um, who are like pre-Christ and post-Christ? No, it's one heaven. One heaven. God's got one like locale, all right? Um, So whether you're a, a person of God before the coming of Jesus or after, we all are one big family in the same place. And people before Jesus did not go to heaven because they followed God's law. It ain't happened after Jesus. It certainly didn't happen before Jesus. Before and after the cross side of human history, all are still nonetheless saved because Jesus died for our sins even if Jews in 800 BC did not know him by name. How about this? You have just learned from the Most High that Jesus is returning before the years, I assume it means end. What do you do different now knowing this? So if you knew that Jesus was going to come by December 31st, what would you do differently? It's a different answer for each of us, isn't it? You ever hear of Martin Luther, that 16th century monk from whom much of the Protestant Reformation takes his name? He was asked this question once, and I I loved his answer. What would you do if, if you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow? His answer, I'd plant a tree. All right, isn't that awesome? Think about that, right? It takes a minute, doesn't it? I'd plant a tree. Why? Because if I'm in Christ and I'm following Christ, I shouldn't have to do anything differently. The course of my life every day should be as though Christ is returning by year's end. 
I don't have to hurry up and get right with God if I'm in Christ because I am right with God. I don't have to start living differently to try to impress God because I should be following Christ here and now already. And even if I did start trying to do it differently, it's not going to impress God anyway. So what would I do differently? Well, I would probably live like I had the 20 million, to be honest with you. Um, But who knows, maybe I should plant a tree as well. Let me take a few more of the originals, okay, from last week. When Jesus called people to become disciples, many of them left their career choice. As we grow in Christ, and Jesus calls us to discipleship, are there certain careers that by design are against the kingdom lifestyle? Yeah. Let me name three. Prostitutes, all right? If you're a prostitute by career choice, you might want to get out of that. Drug dealer, all right? And dentist, just the pain that you inflicted, you know. (laughs) But are there career lifestyles? Are there career choices? Of course, if, if your career is immersed in shady practice or in sin, you might be called to walk away from that. But you know what's fascinating to me is that when, when people were coming to John the Baptist by the Jordan River, and, and many of these people were immersed in careers that were known for their shady practices. Tax collectors who were known for, for exploiting the poor and living off bribes. John the Baptist didn't turn around and say, leave your career. He said something different. Do your career in a way that honors God no matter what the price. No matter what it costs you, what the risk, what will fall upon you, you do your career white. Do not take more than you are required to take. When the centurions come to him and the Roman soldiers who are pledged to pagan gods and an evil empire in the Christian's mind, I say, what do we do? You know what John answers them? Don't exploit people. Don't extort people. Do your career right. All of us have careers that bring us into places where we are forced to make hard choices, knowing that if we choose God's way, it will cost us. That's what Jesus calls you to. Be willing to pay the price. Be willing to be martyred. Be willing to take hits, gather stigmas, or lose opportunity. I know that isn't easy what I'm saying, but it's fundamental what it means when Jesus says count the cost. And if you find yourself in a career that is just too tempting to sin, that is just too compromising for your soul and spirit, and there is not a way around it from within, then in that case, yeah, walk away. Walk away and trust God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength and make that choice for him. Do I realize what I'm saying out loud? I do. And if any of you would like to talk about that more, to work through the details of what does it mean for me, guys know that I'd be more than happy to. All right. We chewed up some major volume today. And I just want to kind of just go, way to go. Uh, on another round of great questions. A lot more came in. 
And if I didn't get to your questions today, we have one more week of this. So next Sunday, we'll, we'll, we'll back clean up with what I didn't get to and encourage you to bring your questions in again. And may I encourage you this week, keep wrestling, keep asking, and keep seeking what God is calling and leading you into in this, 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 this life that we have. Would you rise with me? And let's pray. God in heaven, you are, you are deep and you are vast and you are mysterious. You are, you are talked about in the scripture as, as, the, as the place and source of, of wisdom, of truth, of knowledge, of insight and understanding. You're talked about with ways like mystery and transcendence. And yet you are a God who reveals yourself. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And Lord, we ask that you work in our dispositions. Guard us from hardening ourselves against you, from blocking you out, from holding you at arm's length, from being afraid to take those radical steps forward that cause us a lot of angst and fear. May we see that you are good, abounding in love and mercy and hope. And may we cling on to that and trust that and hold on to that, even in the times when it feels compromised, in the times when you feel absent, in the times when we are struggling with the choice to make or the regret over the choice we have. Continue to lead us as a people, God, deeper and deeper into your word, your knowledge, and your will. This, of oh God, we pray. Amen. Amen.